the Staff and Graph podcast. This is weird. My lock's been drilled, so I open the door and my steering wheel is missing. Inlinks are salad. You know what? You're trying very hard not to get sued. You can have all the talent in the world skating around, but if you don't have a goaltender, it does not matter. Team tidy business, baby. Welcome to a very special edition of the Staff and Graph podcast. I am not joined by Mikey Stevens. Instead, I am joined by former hockey executive and lawyer, noted lawyer, Chris Gear. Chris, how are you? Very well. It's nice to, nice to uh, finally meet you in person here, or at least virtually. Um, so thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, so there's a lot coming. Free agency is July 1st. It's June 30th. And I figured there is no better time to have somebody on the podcast that's actually been through it at an executive level. I've been through it at an analyst level, but going through it as an executive I feel like it's a little bit different. And now we're removed from the game. So kind of want to nice and easy, like what does watching hockey look like as an executive versus as a fan? Does that change how you evaluate players, how you approach it? Like, how do you look at that? Yeah, it's absolutely different. I mean, you, you try to still maintain some level of fandom, even though it's your job, but you can't help but be analyzing the flaws in a player be looking at their cap hit, be thinking about their term, you know, all these things that don't really matter to you as a fan or they matter to some fans, obviously the ones that are, <laughs> that are uh, always on cap friendly, but you know, as an executive, those are the things you're always thinking about with respect to a player versus just, you know, what does he do on the ice? So it's uh, it, it is a little bit of a different mindset for sure. Yeah. It's like one of those, I feel like watching now it's a little bit more enjoyable because I'm not sitting there going, Oh, like, is he worth 80% of his cap hit? Does this warrant this? It's a little bit less. Would you say it's less stressful? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember if we had a player that was, let's say it was an RFA that was due for his next contract and he'd score a goal. And on one hand, you'd want to be happy for your team. And on the other hand, you'd be like, oh, man, this guy's number is climbing. Right. So (laughs) you you watched it with a bit of a a double-edged sword, but, but now you can just, you know, watch and appreciate, uh, the guy's skill so yeah it's nice you can you you can watch and you can you can cheer for them it's it's so much easier it's like I could cheer for certain players to score 40 or whatever the case because now the contract that they sign impacts me zero like I don't care I hope they get all the money exactly Exactly. take as much as you can (laughs) exactly okay so the week leading up to I guess like the draft and free agency it's a it's the biggest, busiest week on the hockey calendar. You were an AGM. What does that week look like? I guess starting from when you get to this year, it would have been in Nashville. Like, what does that look like for you? Yeah, so you got to divide and conquer a little bit. Um, in our organization, I had not that much to do with the draft. I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't oversee the scouting department. Uh, I did attend the scouting meetings. I mean, everybody on the team attends to try and get a grasp of, of, you know, who's on the list and and which way you're thinking and what the organizational priorities are. But since I didn't have, you know, a ton of responsibility there, I was more looking at, okay, getting our, our QO letters ready, making sure we had proper guys qualified 
having discussions with the agents for the RFAs, um, you know, thinking about, okay, once we draft guys, how soon might we want to get them into an ELC and also starting to work with the pro scouts on free agency, because as you said, there's not very much time between the draft and July one. And so you've got to be ready. And so while you have some people in the front office focused on the draft and, and the player list, you have other people making sure your ducks are in a row uh, for free agency. So that was more That's- of my game. Yeah, I feel like it's it's almost like one of those things where when you're the the quote unquote cap guy, you're ducking in and out of those scouting meetings because you want to be able to poke your head in and say, okay, like who's on the list, and then but you're really like you say qualifying offers and pro scouting. So how do you how do you know? Okay, like I've got this kind of settled. I can go duck into the scouting meetings. Maybe have some dialogue around if we're there's always teams that are trying to move up or down and GMs are always talking about, Hey, we might have some options. So do they bring you in when they say, Hey, I might be able to move a player off our roster for a draft pick. Is that sort of when you would get brought into the scouting meetings on a little bit more of an involved basis? Yeah. I mean, there were, there were a number of, of ways where you could become more involved in those meetings. I generally try to be involved in them as much as possible. And at least, at least be in attendance. I mean, you might have to slip out if an agent called or something, but you want to be in the mix. You want to know what's going on. You want to know, you know, just about these players. I mean, I, I wasn't someone that watched a ton of junior games or college games. So my learning about these players would occur during the scouting meetings. And so, you know, I wasn't going to have much input into the picks, but I wanted to know why we were thinking the way we did. And then if, if issues came up around, you know, moving up or down and moving a player out, then, you know, I can provide my input then. Um, versus, you know, sort of getting called in and creating this furor about it. I was already plugged in. <laughs> yeah, see, that's that's helpful. It's always, I mean, like I've definitely had a couple instances where it's like, go get this guy because we ought to ask him about it. And I would always think to myself, I'm like, well, why is he not here? Because now we've the meeting pauses. We've got to explain and bring him up to speed. And then it's like, okay, now let's sit and talk about this for an hour. And I feel like it almost derails everything. Everyone gets totally unfocused and then the list i mean you've sat in these meetings like some of these lists take way too long to make do they not oh totally right i remember they put you know three names on the board let's say were three players that were fairly comparable one might be from europe one might be from the ohl one might be from the ushl or u.s development team and it's obviously really hard to compare guys across those leagues but you've got, you know, scouts from each one of those regions that really, really likes that player and wants to dig in on that player. And so how do you settle that dispute? I mean, you have your so-called crossover scouts who have seen all the players and they bring their input to bear. But at the end of the day, you can go back and forth and back and forth and move guys up and down, up and down. And, you know, you still might not put them in the right sequence, but uh, you have to go through that exercise to try to at least build as much consensus as you can. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of those things to get in the first couple of rounds. But then I'm sitting here and I remember thinking to myself at one point, I'm like, we have spent three five minutes arguing about the one hundred and tenth ranked and twelfth ranked players on our list. Like this seems like we could be doing something better with our time. Um, but then you have like you want your scouts to quote unquote pound the table for those guys. I think it just maybe at some point it's like, okay, enough. We we don't need to talk about 110 because frankly, we don't even have 
a fourth round pick. So does it matter at this point? I've, I've always found those conversations funny as well. They totally are. But, you know, I think that's where, and, and you're pretty well placed to understand this, but as scouting departments started to integrate more with the analytics departments of teams, you can then settle disputes with, well, let's let the data talk for us. Right. And when, when the viewings you have might be more limited, let's say the, the, the guys, Latvian or Slovakian, and maybe you don't have as much, you know, tape on the guy um, or video. <laughs> I said tape. I guess yeah, that's still tape. Anyway, shows my age. But um, you know, so you you let the data supplement your lack of viewing, or you just let the data tell you whether your eye test is is seeing the right things or missing things. And so I think that integration. Uh, and most teams do that now where the, the analysts are very involved in the scouting department and in the process. And that's a really good thing because, you know, the eye test alone just doesn't cut it. And when you can add both of those elements, I think you get much stronger, uh, a total package of understanding. How do you decide what days are worth qualifying and what RFAs maybe your team is willing to walk away from? What, what goes into the process there? Well, there's sort of two levels of, of player. There's the guy that, you know, you're not really sure whether they're going to make your team. Um, and so even if the qualifying offer is quite low, it could be league minimum, might even be a two-way offer. You're wondering whether that's a player that has a long-term future on your team. And if he doesn't, sometimes it's better to walk away, give the player a, a change of scenery, let someone else sign him and, and see if they can develop them differently or, or, or whether that change of scenery can help. Uh, you know, then you've got players on, on the higher side where, you know, maybe their, uh, their first post ELC contract was quite significant and then they didn't perform up to the expectation. They're still an RFA and your QO has to be, you know, hundred percent of that. And so you're thinking, Hmm, maybe if we don't qualify that player, he becomes a UFA, but we can still have a discussion and sign him at a price lower than the QO, uh, which I know we did in one instance with Derek Pouliot uh, back in the day. And I think, you know, it, it happens quite frequently where a team will not qualify a particular RFA and they end up being the one that signs them right away. Because um, right. there's still an investment. There's still, there's still a desire on both sides to be part of the organization, but both sides realize maybe that, that number uh, isn't, isn't suitable for the player given his performance. And so to, to stay with it, you sign at a lower number. There's also the guys where you might just say, you know what, we've, we've tried with this guy and it's not working. And at this number, or even at a little bit lower number, we're just not prepared to, to stick with it. And then you just make that tough decision to walk away. And, you know, sometimes the, the cap space that you get by not investing in the guy any further is, is worth more than, trying to keep them around, right? Because there's always that temptation when you've invested in a player's development to say, well, let's, let's give him one more chance or let's, you know, we've, we've come this far, maybe he can get to the next level. And then sometimes that investment you end up regretting because you should have cut bait when you had a chance. But how do you approach it when I feel like talked about it where you can, you can revisit it. Does a player of that magnitude who let's say, let's call them a top six player or a, a top four D man, they're not quite worth their QA. Is there an maybe like some, some hard feelings there on the if the team goes and says, Hey, like 
you're not worth seven and a half million or you're not worth ten and a half million, but we want to keep you. It's just, it's got to be at a more appropriate number. How does that sort of conversation get managed? Well, first of all, those conversations are being had with the agent rather than the player directly. So that's, I mean, you know that the player is probably going to be reacting negatively to that, but you know, it's similar to if you went to a salary arbitration, sometimes those you've got to bring up the, the team's true position on the player. And, and yes, there may be some hard feelings, but at the end of the day, it's a business and the player has to understand that, you know, the, the, the best, the best reaction to that is the I'll show you mentality, right. And the player comes back and actually has a and proves that that investment was worthwhile. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, you have to, have to balance your objectives here you do want to keep the player motivated and happy but at the same time you've got to get the best deal you can for the club so if you know even reverse arbing a player you know that that's something that's rarely done but i'm actually surprised teams don't take advantage of that because you know if a player doesn't live up to their number and you can reverse arb and, and get sort of a 15 percent pay cut on that qualifying offer you know, sometimes I think that's worthwhile. You, you've seen now that players aren't afraid to exercise their rights and walk away from teams when they're not happy. And I think teams need to be a little more aggressive in exercising the rights that they have. I guess, okay, so RFAs qualifying all of that. What is salary arbitration like? Because I've, I've got to sit in one. This was like long before I, I worked for either organization. I was always told that agents sometimes tell their players not to take what the team says to heart because you're kind of like arguing effectively and you got to make your case. But are you careful when you're presenting your case, especially if it's a player that you really, really value? Yeah, I know. I have to, I have to qualify my answer because I actually, in, in my time, I never went to arbitration with a player. Uh, I think the last one that the Canucks did was Yannick Hansen way, way back when. Um, so the man's retired. <laughs> oh, exactly. Right. So I, I don't speak from direct experience, but I, I think your points well taken is that, you know, an agent will tell a player, look, the, the team has a job to do. And, and usually it's a third party, right? Usually it's one of the law firms in Toronto that specializes in, in the labor arbitrations and they are your mouthpiece. So they're the ones making the arguments and, you can kind of pass it off as, Hey, like we engaged them and they said all this crazy stuff about you. That's not us. But uh, no, at the end of the day, it is a business. <laughs> Both sides have to understand that you're going to, you know, the player is going to take a bit of a blue sky position too, right? His agent or his counsel is going to paint him as a, a much better player than he probably is and, and draw comparisons with players who you would never compare that player to. But it's part of the game. It's you go into the arbitration knowing that each side is going to put forth a, a pretty aggressive position. And generally the arbitrator is going to cut the baby in half anyway. So, um, and, and I think that's why, you know, baseball used to have, a, I'm not sure if they still have, they have that final offer selection, right. Where you, you, each side puts in an offer and the arbitrator has to pick one. Whereas in hockey, right. They do have that. Yeah. yeah so in hockey, they're generally compromising. And I think everybody now knows, you know, they're just going to, you're just going to spend a bunch of money for the arbitrator to split the baby. So why not come to an agreement ahead of time and split the baby yourself and avoid the arbitration costs. So, 
you know, it's a, it's a bit of a flawed process, I think, but you know, it does, it does solidify people's positions and force you, you've got that date looming. It forces you to make a deal. So, you know, when you've got ELC players that don't have a deadline other than December, they can just drag it out, drag it out, drag it out and force you as the team to capitulate a bit to their demands. But in an arbitration, it forces both sides to the table and usually ends up resulting in a deal. So in that way, it's effective. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about offer sheets. So when I was employed by a team, um, I brought up the idea of an offer sheet and what the value could be and why I thought it was a good idea. And I got looked at like I had five heads. What? I mean, Carolina and Montreal have offered you to each other, but why is it that this group of hockey people absolutely refuses to do something that is very clearly in the CBA? What is it like a betrayal? What's going on there? Great question, right? And I mentioned it before. It's the same with the reverse ARB where teams are reluctant to use a mechanism that's been put there for their use. And you know, in some ways I get it. I mean, the, the Carolina Montreal example is, is perfect, right? Because one team does it and then the other team retaliates and it becomes this bit of a war. And so it, it's almost like this unspoken agreement that you don't mess with another team's players under contract, even though you have the right to. And if you do, you, you're deemed to have breached the code and then everything's fair game and people will come after you. But <laughs> You know, again, it's a it's a business. It's a bottom line business. It's a business where you have to try to win. And if the CBA puts something at your disposal that could help you, I think you have to consider it. You know, you don't. I'm not saying oh, you should be offer sheeting guys all the time, but there are cases where a team's capped out, and you know you could get that player by making a specific offer, and and people just shy away from it because they fear the retribution. And I. I think if more teams took the aggressive approach, you'd, you'd start to see offer sheets become more common. And then maybe that retro, retributory aspect might fall away because people just get used to it. So, you know, I, I would have listened to you at the time um, and, and heard what you had to say. And yeah, I think it's, uh, it's something teams should do more of. And, and the other thing is it's, it's actually good for the game. I mean, the Carolina Montreal thing was hilarious, you know, the way they went about it and the, the number and just, it was, it was well done. And it was, it was good for fans. I think. Yeah. And it, it also encourages player movement. We look at the NBA, which has the single wildest trade deadline off season in any sport. Like some of the things that happen are just totally insane. And I, I thought about this, but it's like Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and, and one other guy have asked for a combined like eight trades in the last two years. Pierre-Luc Dubois has asked for a trade twice in his career and there is a referendum on his character. And it's like, okay, that, that shift for Tortorella in Columbus was decidedly a bad look, but I think players like Matthew Kachuk are starting to exercise their power. I don't understand why a team, and maybe it's because everybody in a front office and you know this, they're all buddies. They're all friends. Like David Poyles mentored half of this league um you and it's like do we not want to betray that but at the same time you can't say that and then say i'm willing to do whatever it takes to win because you're not w- would you agree with that yeah i would i would i mean the only 
the only downside to that, I guess, is you say, okay, I'm, I'm prepared to do everything to win. And you, and you make that one offer sheet. And even if you're successful, it may lead down the road to teams not dealing with you or teams offer sheeting your players. And so it's a bit of that mutually assured destruction when you're, when you're nuclear powers, right? It's like, yeah. I'm not going to use my nukes on the premise that you're not going to use your nukes against me. And, you know, so there's a bit of that where, okay, I'm not going to do it because it could hurt me. And so not doing it is actually in my best interest, but I don't know. I, I still, I still lean in favor of you have to at least be willing to consider it. I'm not necessarily saying you go after the guy's star player, but maybe it's that guy that, you know, is, is a bubble player that, that you think really has potential to pop and you give them a million more than the other team. And they're not, you know, you're not taking their Matthew Kachuk, but maybe you're taking, you know, somebody else, a Dylan Dubé. I, I don't know why I just came up with these examples, but you brought up Kachuk, so I'm thinking of another player on the Flames who you might have gone after, yeah. right? And, um, you know, I, I think that's not going to maybe attract the same ire from that team as you going after their their biggest star. And so I think it's I think it's fair game. I think teams should be looking to do those kinds of things. Okay, so then what do you we talk about not qualifying players. We talk about offer sheets. Buyouts are a, a thing this offseason, whether it's Matt Duchesne, Kyler Yamamoto, Oliver Ekman Larson. Uh, a, just it seems like there are a lot. There's Zach Cassian. What do you, because I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure it had to be a consideration at, at some point when you were employed. What are things as the guy in charge of managing the cap? that get considered when you discuss buying out a player and, and what would tip the scales either in favor of doing it or not, regardless of who your owner is? Um, you know, it's, it's been pretty well documented, right? I mean, the, do you suffer through the cap inefficiency of the player's remaining years or do you try to give yourself a little bit of breathing room up front and pay for it in a smaller chunk over more years? there's no perfect answer. Both of them are bad options, but it just depends on, on where your priorities are and where you think your, your window is. So if you think you have a window, you know, to, to win or to be really competitive and you think that the buyout will give you the cap flexibility to try and do what you need to do to achieve that in that particular year, then sure, maybe take it on the chin in those future years and, you foresee the cap going up and you can absorb it a little more easily in those future years. So, you know, maybe that's the decision you come to, but if, if you decide that your team really isn't there, um, you know, why not just have that player live out the rest of the term and, you know, or you can bury them in the AHL and at least save yourself 1.1 million off the cap. And so, yeah, it's, it's always a difficult call. It depends. There's, there's different, organizational motivations and priorities and you just have to balance the instructions you get with the upside and downside of each scenario and uh, it's it's never easy it's never something you want to do it's also it's also a really tough look on the player but then they go and sign another contract and still get paid by two teams so it's not that bad in the end um yeah buyouts are buyouts are an interesting one yeah i think buyouts are the flat cap, obviously, that was created by the pandemic um, has definitely caused that to be a more of an issue, I would say, than it likely would have been if the cap was 
of a lot higher and closer to $90 million. But you, so if I'm reading this and understanding it correctly, what you're saying is, is like buying out a player, especially like on a bigger salary, that's inefficient. If you're in a contending window, that sometimes can make a lot of sense because you can then use that cap space more efficiently as you try and contend. But if you're decidedly not contending, whether you're like a, a bubble team or you're not in the playoffs, at what point do buyouts of players with five plus million dollar salaries not make sense? Well, I mean, you look at, you know, Minnesota is a good example. They, they bought out two players, Parisian Suter. And when you look down the road, I forget what the exact cap hits are, but over the next four or five years, they're going to have, I don't know, I think it's like 14 million in dead money. Yeah. And so, (laughs) and so, you know, that probably cost them Fiala last year. Um, You know, they've, they managed to stay a much better team this year than I thought. They, they picked up some players around the edges that helped. But I think over the next few years, it's going to be really difficult for them to stay competitive when they have that much money tied up that, that they can't use on players. So, you know, was that was that decision something they, they had to do? I don't know. I mean, it, time will tell whether they can navigate around that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I think I – think Anytime a player is making that much money, um, you have to look at other options. I think like even, you know, strapping a first or second round pick to get rid of the money. I mean, to me, that's a better option. You never like to get rid of a high pick, of course, but is that better than strapping yourself with five, six million um, for numerous years? I kind of think so. So yeah, there's never a perfect answer, but uh yeah, when it when it becomes multiple years at multiple millions, you're you're really putting your team at a disadvantage in terms of being able to fill out a roster that's competitive. Yeah, I, I definitely. And then you're looking for cheap UFAs and nine nine hundred seventy five thousand. So, okay, when you're when you're looking, we're approaching free agency. It's June twenty seventh, twenty eighth, twenty ninth. There's no. Uh, t- tampering period anymore and that's extremely in air quotes um how do you gauge a ufa's interest because their their contract doesn't expire until june 30th but i mean when july 1st at noon hits we have like 86 deals that all of a sudden just bing they happen so how do you it's amazing how that happens and there's no tampering but how do you gauge whether a UFA that you're interested in is interested in you before any of that occurs? Yeah. I mean, there's obviously lots of discussion that happens between the teams and the agents, you know, basically from the time the season ends, uh, let alone June 27th. So, you know, I think there's, there's been a lot discussed during that time, Um, money, term, interest, family, all of those things do get discussed. Um, You know, technically you're not supposed to present an offer. And I think, you know, that's probably how teams, they, they, they send the document at 12, the guy signs it and it's back by 1202 and it gets filed. And I guess they say that's within the rules, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's not like July one, you're like, okay, who should we, who should we talk to? Right. I mean, you have a very good idea um, as you hit July one, 
which guys you're signing and which guys have, have indicated that they're prepared to, to meet the money in term that you're offering. So it's um, July, July one is, is not a day of, of surprise for most of the players. Now, you know, the, the best thing is that there are guys that will miss the initial wave and then fall through the cracks. And that's where all the deals happen, right? It's the guys signed on July 2nd, July 3rd, July 10th. Um, those are the guys where you can really mine value because either, you know, the other teams that are cash strapped have gone out and spent the rest of their money to get the higher price free agents. And then you've got some really good guys who other teams want, but can't afford. Um, or you've got guys that maybe were just, you know, at a bit lower level and didn't, didn't, you know, participate in the frenzy and they're really good value. And that's where you, you, you know, if you, um, you shop in the, the bargain bins, you can often find really good players to fill out your roster. Well, yeah, I think the best uh, quote that I see, it gets brought up every year. I think it was Brian Burke who said it, just the biggest mistakes get made on July 1st. And, and then I remember somebody who, who's become a mentor for me said, the best deals get signed after July 5th. And it's interesting to hear you say that because now I'm, I'm, I'm thinking back to that. And I mean, TSN always has these charts that are like, oh, like this many hundreds of millions of dollars was spent on July 1st. And then you look at the $8 million total that was spent on July 10th, and you'd rather have every single one of the deals on July 10th than you would on July 1st. Like there's very rarely, in fact, I can't think of one off the top of my head, a good value UFA deal signed in the first hour of free agency, right? Like, do you, yeah. do you subscribe to that? <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what, usually where it goes astray is on the term because, you know, usually you can, you can get your head around the money that a player wants and they've probably earned it from their prior seasons or what they've accomplished. But usually, I mean, if they're a UFA, they're obviously 27 or older. So they're on the, you know, the, not the tail end necessarily, but, you know, they're approaching the tail end. And so you have to be really careful. And, you know, so many of these guys now get six, seven, eight year terms, and those are really dangerous. And, you know, even if you get the right number, a six, seven, eight year term can cripple you down the road. So it's, it's really tough. And that's why the deals that are available later, it's, there's usually not a whole bunch of teams jockeying for them. And, and when there are a number of teams in the equation, that's where a team will throw in an extra year or an extra two years because they just have to have the player. And later on the you know July 3rd, 4th, 5th, 10th, it's probably down to one or two teams and it's more about the fit than the term. And they're willing to take something that's more reasonable. And so if you can get a guy for a year or two, uh, you're not going to be as worried about the cap hit if you've made a mistake. And you also might have a guy that you can flip at the deadline and turn into something. So you know, I think the really smart signings um, are the ones that are a year or two. And if the guy fits with your roster, you can always try to extend them. And if not, you flip them for hopefully an asset. Yeah, that's, I mean, you look at it, I, I always say every July 1st, do, if they're not a top six forward or a top four defenseman, you don't give them term and you don't give them money. Like, it's, you can have a third and fourth line that's a bunch of guys on two-year deals. Like, there should not be... Unless it's a really good third liner, uh, I don't think you need to be handing out a five-year deal to a third line player. I think that's actually dangerous. Um, even three years, like to me, more than two for a, a fourth line player is 
almost inexcusable. Yeah, but, if the money's if the money's low enough, then you don't really care. Like, let's say it's a million five or something. If if it doesn't work yeah. out, you can bury almost all of that in the AHL, or you know, you can you can waive the guy. Somebody might pick him up. Um, but yeah, you can always find. I, I think you can always find. And I made this point yesterday on Twitter with respect to the draft is you can always find your fourth liners or your bottom pair defensemen, you know, on a cheap UFA deal or through waivers, you know, in, in, in early October when, when, when it's yep. that eighth defenseman that they want to keep, but they can't. So boom, there, now you've got your seventh um, or your sixth. And so there's always a way to find those guys. And so that's why in the draft, I say even, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round, like go for broke find a guy that looks like he's highly skilled and could be a top six. Even if he's a long way away from that. Now he's got some sort of skill or elite speed or an elite shot so that you're projecting that, Hey, he might get to that, that top six level because we don't need to, to draft and develop fourth liners. Those are pretty interchangeable commodities that you can find through waivers or through UFA on July 5th. Yeah, fair enough. Those are the the bargain bin hunting that that you're talking about. So when you're doing this, you're we're prepping for free agency, but not now. It's it's the couple days before free agency. You're working with agents because I know um, I don't know if like a lot of people know this, but a lot of the times it's not the GM that's directly dealing with the agent. It's the guy in charge of the salary cap that's dealing with the agents all the time. When you are doing a big contract negotiation, so let's. Um, I was going to use an example from our former team, but I'm not. Let's talk Timo Meyer, right? That's an extension that, or actually even better, Alex Dabrinkat. He needs a new deal. During a bigger level contract negotiation, a top six player, a top two defenseman, how often are the agent and the team communicating? And, and what does that sort of communication look like? So are you talking about a UFA or RFA? Because I want to clarify that, I mean, in, in my case, my role was mostly RFAs and ELCs. And when there was a UFA discussion, it was more of a, this is the player we want. This is the range we're comfortable with and go make it happen. Uh, oh, versus, well, no, no, no. I, I mean, but you're not you're not as in control of the negotiation with the okay. UFA because you've got a, a shorter time window. I mean, right. with the RFAs, like say Pedersen and Hughes, you know, we started that negotiation in February or March and concluded in September. So you're in charge of the negotiation or, or I, the agent's probably in charge of it more, but yeah. Um, yeah. you know, you, you take your time and, and you, you go back and forth and you try to use your leverage points. Whereas in a UFA negotiation, you've got a couple of days, right? And so Usually it's, you know, this is the player we want and, you know, you, you've got to find a way to, to make that happen and limit the damage as much as possible, but, but make it happen. So that's, um, it is a totally different negotiation. And I would say that the GMs are much more involved in that discussion because at the end of the day, the player wants to feel wanted and the player wants to feel um, courted. And, you know, generally the, the AGM doing that courting isn't, isn't, doesn't have the same impact. So the, the GMs are yeah. for sure more involved in the UFA negotiations. And, you know, I wouldn't say that there it's, it's not really a negotiation the way the RFA discussions unfold. It's more of a, you know, the agent will say, this is what my guy is looking for. And there's four teams that are in the ballpark to pay this. And so what are you guys willing to do? 
And so, you know, you either end the conversation and say, that's too rich for our blood. Come again. See you later. Yeah. Um, or, or you try to get, you say, well, we might not go that high, but maybe we'd be in this range. And you try to see if the agent's bluffing or if they, you know, they might tell you, okay, well, that's not going to get it done. So, you know, good luck. Or they might say, well, you know, we'll see. He does like your city. So, and you try to pick up cues from the agent as to whether they're bluffing. Do they really have four teams in the mix? Maybe it's only one other team. Maybe the guy wants your city at all costs, but he has to build up this, um, you know, aura that there are other teams. So you're, you're trying to figure out exactly who's telling the truth. And, and, and I don't mean lying, but they, they, they create um, smoke where sometimes it doesn't exist. Right. And, and so you're just trying to figure out what's, what's real and what's not. And, and, you know, what's a deal that you can achieve. And, and then again, there's, there's organizational parameters that if, if that player is the target, you might be willing to do something that you wouldn't otherwise. So you talk about RFA negotiations. And I think that that's really interesting because there's, there's a lot of RFA negotiations, obviously um, the Canucks had them with Pedersen and Hughes and, and there's some really interesting RFAs this year, obviously Alex to bring being um, the, I would say probably the biggest one now with Timo Meyer no longer um, an RFA. So you say you, you start negotiations like months in advance. How often, because I think based on the people that I've spoken to, like that are fans, they think that these negotiations are basically like sit down at dinner and go back and forth. Like you're having a debate. And I'm like, no, that is not even remotely close to what happens. So let's say you've got a top line player or a top pairing defenseman or a top level goaltender. RFA, they're clearly worth some money here. What does the negotiation look like? You know, there's no, there's no one formula for negotiation. I remember when, when we did the negotiation with Thatcher Demko, it happened over probably a period of about a a week. You know, we had three or four discussions with Jordan Newman, um, went, went back and forth. We presented a case for the comparables we thought worked with Thatcher. Um, and you know, Jordan would come back with a different case and there was some give and take there and, and a deal just presented itself. It, it just made sense for everyone. And we were happy with the term we got and the money. He was happy that, you know, given that there wasn't a huge sample size other than, you know, his bubble performance and, and being a backup to Markstrom, but there was enough there for him to say, yeah, five-year commitment. That's, that's a good commitment. And the deal just was there um, with, with Pedersen and Hughes, obviously it was, it was much more difficult and, we knew we wanted to start early because they were going to take up so much of our cap space that if we, if we could figure that out early, we'd be able to build around them. Ultimately it worked out the opposite way where there was no movement at all in those discussions. So we had to go and build the rest of the team and leave enough money for them, which wasn't ideal, but it was, it was ultimately what we had to do. And um, you know, it, it helped in some ways because at, at the end of the day, you could say, look, there's only this much money left. You know, had you discussed this with us earlier when we tried to engage you, maybe we could have paid more, but we are where we are. We're, we are where we are. And this is what's left. And so that sort of forces you into a deal framework. Um, so every, every negotiation is, is different and there's no, there's no formula. I think with 
um, you know, with someone like, well, with someone like Timo Meyer, he comes to a new team, they see him in the playoffs. There's, you know, there isn't that, that long history and, and previous discussion. And so they just, they get right down to business and they figure it out. And it's, um, they obviously want the player. They've seen what, what he can add to the team. And, um, you know, with the brink out, it will be similar where, you know, it'll be a new team and they'll have to decide what he's worth to them. Um, uh, you know, his, his play in Chicago and, and Ottawa was a little bit different. So I'm not sure how you look at those two situations and, and predict what the brink out really is, but, um, that's the, that's the challenge to it. That's the, the nuance is looking at both of those scenarios, looking at comparable players that maybe have moved teams and saying, okay, well, we think this is where he fits and the team will say, this is where he fits. And it's just about coming to something that both sides can agree with. And if both sides are a little unhappy, usually that's, that's where there's a good deal. <laughs> that's where, that's where the deal's good. I mean, I remember, um, the the Pedersen Hughes deals and I remember when when the Quinn deal was announced I I looked at that and I went that is a solid piece of work for both sides so that's kind of exactly what you're talking about because it's like Quinn gives up some term but he's going to get a second massive contract when that deal comes up you the Canucks get Quinn locked in for what they hope was a contending window and then it was obviously different with PD but I I mean I think Elias Pedersen's proved his quality beyond, his quality beyond <laughs> anything at this point. Yeah, so let's. Well, just, just quickly on Petey. I mean, people forget he was coming off a very significant wrist injury. Um, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of doctors were sort of questioning how soon he'd be able to recover from that. So there was a, a little bit of trepidation going on there. And, you know, at the same time, you look at, like, he's going to have to get probably an $11 million deal for that bridge not to be an appropriate deal, right? So um, based on what he would have commanded and what he was requesting to command based on a five or six or seven year deal. So, you know, people are, people are going to be like, Oh, that bridge never should have been done. But, you know, in, in hindsight, and maybe I'll be the only one who knows this or the people that were close to the deal, but it's going to have to be a pretty big number on his next deal for that bridge to not have been a good deal. Fair enough. Okay, so July 1st, what happens? Typical day. Walk us through from 5 a.m. onwards. What does that look like for Chris Gear? any unnamed AGM? How does that play out? Yeah, so you're, you're right about the time you're in it, especially on the West Coast, because the, the, the folks on the East have already been at it. For, <laughs> so, yeah, you're, you're there at 5 a.m., um, you know, as I said, you probably most of the guys that you're going to sign, you probably have a pretty good idea that, that those are done. Um, but then it's it's you know trades could still happen. There's uh, lots of discussions that happen with with the teams um, when you see guys get taken off the board. So you're you're monitoring whether it's you know Sportsnet or TSN or Daily Faceoff or whatever whatever platform you want to watch. You're, you're monitoring. Um, which guys come off the board and, and then that sort of sends everybody into a tizzy going, okay, well, he's gone. So now the attention is going to focus to this other player. And so, you know, there's, it's a pretty frenetic day because you're, you're seeing what's going on. You're trying to react to it. You're trying to see whether any new opportunities arise from what other teams are doing. 
uh, you know, maybe they add a player and you go, geez, now they're capped out. They're going to want to get rid of this other player. And so you make a phone call or an inquiry there. There's a lot of moving parts. So I would say it's, it's less, the moving parts are less about the guys you're about to sign and more about what other things might transpire on that day that are related to just what's going on. And the other thing people forget is that you're, you're trying to uh, build your AHL roster at the same time. So you're acquiring depth, you're, you're looking at other organizational pieces that, that can supplement your AHL team. And so I remember in, I think it was 2019 or 2020, we signed, I think 21 contracts on July one or July one and two. Uh, and it involved That's busy. <laughs> and Sheldon Dries and Sheldon Rempel and Nick Patan and all these guys that were sort of destined for the AHL or the, you know, maybe the up down um, call up guys. And in addition to some UFAs for the big club, and it was, it was a massive undertaking just doing all the contracts for all those players and shipping them off to central registry. And I remember the, the day we did that, our, uh, our hockey ops manager, Cheryl was, away and so God bless Cheryl she's great Cheryl's the best but you know she wasn't there and so that day it was like okay I am you know negotiator contract drafter and uh executive assistant all in one and firing stuff back to CR central registry and it was it was quite a day I think I might have uh might have set a record that day for most uh most contracts submitted She's the person at central registries on a, like a, they just have you with your own separate number at that point. Yeah. All right. So there's like a couple of listener questions that I thought were really cool and I definitely didn't think of them. So we'll uh, definitely get, get your take on them. Nice and short and sweet. Um, Do the opinions of the public slash media ever sway or weigh a decision at the management or ownership level? (laughs) oh boy uh they shouldn't but you know in hockey mad markets especially the canadian markets and probably a few of the uh the northeastern u.s markets you know people listen people people hear the comments uh owners hear the comments and absolutely there are there's influence. I wouldn't say any decision is ever made strictly because a fan or, or media sentiment, but it definitely, you know, pushes and influences decisions in a certain way. There's no, there's no way around that. It's just the noise is too loud and the, the sentiments are too strong to ignore sometimes. That's yeah. I, I kind of feel the same way about that. You just, you notice it, right? You can't go out and get, breakfast without seeing it or hearing about it what are aspects of being an AGM that are underappreciated or aren't given enough consideration by the general public because I I know that people asked me about like one specific aspect of my job and I was like I spent two percent of my time doing that like what what do you think were parts of your job where people just don't recognize that that was such a significant part of your role that's a good question. And uh, it's, it's very true. I mean, the, the stuff that gets the most attention is sometimes the stuff that you, you don't spend a significant amount of time on. Um, you know, I was, I was in charge of kind of the operating budget of the team. So, you know, the flights and the hotels and the staff that, that managed all of that, 
Um, I did the preseason schedule working with the other teams to figure that part out. Uh, you know, just the handling the, the legal issues that were not only the, the hockey ops legal issues like grievances that came by or, uh, you know, when is a player entitled to accommodation uh, in the city or, or when you're sending players up and down, like who pays for their vehicle and their luggage and all of these incidentals, right. That happen. And it's all part of the CBA and it's all part of managing the relationship you have with the players. And then also with all the service providers. Um, so if you're, if you're bringing in any consultants or you're bringing in um, you know, software uh, for for analytics or for, um, you know, the, the stuff that was in the jerseys that monitored heart rate right. and speed and all those things. You have a software license agreement to negotiate with a party. And so there's, there's all these things that happen that don't get any attention, but they take time in your day. Uh, and then, you know, in my case, I was, I was kind of wearing three hats. I was assistant GM. I was also chief legal officer of the business. So working on sponsorship and licensing and broadcast and all sorts of other things that, didn't even touch the hockey team. And then I was also the governor of the lacrosse team just for the hell of it. Cause why not? So, you know, I, I wouldn't change that. It didn't, none of that detracted from my ability to, to do the things I had to do as AGM. They were, they were things I, I enjoyed and I relished being part of so much more of the organization, but yeah, not, not too many people would know or, or expect that I was doing all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I had to laugh when you said chief legal officer, because like, obviously with, with everything that I'm dealing with, it's like, oh my goodness, like, how does, I know what it takes to manage like the cap and like that side of it. Cause you see those people every day, but to, to be balancing that as well as the legal issues for Aquilini investment group or Canuck sports and entertainment is like, that's a, as a full-time job on its own like there's a c title in that name and so that's that's interesting but i think like fans would probably feel more comforted to know that at least um their organization had a proper lawyer negotiating contracts because there's like there's so many times where like i'll hear some cap guy say something i'm like that does not follow labor code like you, but what <laughs> no that's not allowed um all right so last one I, this is this one made me chuckle. Um, how many times do executives utter things under their breath during various meetings because they disagree, but they knew it was a fruitless effort? <laughs> I was dying when I saw this question. I was like, I have to ask. Well, obviously lots. I mean, you can't, <laughs> you're never going to have a front office and you don't want a front office, quite frankly, that is just groupthink or where everybody agrees with the strategy. You want people who have different viewpoints and who aren't afraid to argue against something that may be proposed. And so, but, you know, I, I had a leader um, on the business side years ago, a guy named Jeff Stipek, and he came up with, he had this saying, he said, there's a time to disagree, but when a decision's made, it's time to commit. And I've always taken that with me is, is whenever you're in a discussion, feel free to disagree, raise your point, do it respect, respectfully, do it with, with data and with reasoning and logic behind it. But if at the end of the day, the organization is going a different way, support that decision, stand behind it, um, find your own reasons to, to justify it or get comfortable with it and then align with it. And so that's, you know, that's what I always tried to do. Was there, 
was there muttering in my own head for sure. But you know, if, if, if the organization collectively makes a decision that you're going to sign a particular guy or make a particular trade or, or not sign a particular guy or, or whatever the decision is, um, you say your piece and then you align with it. And that's the only way to be in, uh, in a front office because otherwise it, it becomes, uh, you know, impossible to, to really have the, the camaraderie you need to, to move forward and to try and build the right culture. Yeah. I think a lot of fans get the impression that just because publicly everybody stands behind a decision, that means that privately they stand behind that decision. Like, I mean, you have to present that united front. Otherwise it looks like you have a fractured front office, but people take that as groupthink, And I'm like, no, it's, it's, you're playing on the same team and not everybody in the public needs to know about the arguments that mom and dad are having behind closed doors. Like that's, that's something that I think really should stay behind closed doors. And, and yeah, it might present as groupthink publicly, but as long as you know that there's not groupthink actually occurring, I think that's probably the healthiest way to go about it because the last thing you want is people talking about how your front office is fractured. Am I right there? Oh, a hundred percent. And, you know, I think despite the abuse that, that our management team has taken and, and a lot of it is, is rightly placed, but, you know, we had a lot of people with, with different opinions, whether that was, whether that was me, whether that was Jonathan Wall, who was also integral in, in our cap management uh, whether it was Aiden Fox on the analytics side, uh, Ryan Johnson on the AHL side, uh, or John and Jim, like there were lots of, of differing viewpoints and lots of arguments. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes we were aligned and the decision still got made differently, but you know, at the end of the day, all you can do is put your best foot forward and your individual beliefs and opinions about how the organization should be run. And, and ultimately it's, there are people above you that make decisions and that's fine. I mean, that's as long as you can be happy with what you contributed and, and the analysis that you did and the effort you brought to the table, I mean, what, what more can you do? Right. So uh, yeah. And it's, I have no regrets. It was, uh, it was all good. Yeah. I, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the pod. I mean, I look back at my time and I'm like, I, you were somebody that I really wish I got to work with. And so it was really cool to be able to, to have this conversation. You can check Chris's Twitter out van Gearman. highly, highly recommend it. You want to learn some things and get actual insight from a guy who actually did this stuff. That's where you should go because he's going to know more than everybody on Twitter who has, a picture of a hockey player as their avatar so thank you so much chris this was awesome and enjoy free agency stress-free thank you very much and thank you for those kind words and uh it was a pleasure speaking with you today and uh you've got a pretty good twitter game yourself so keep up the great work and keep up the good work on the pod and maybe i can come back some other time sounds good thanks chris